Let's pray. Oh, Father, the delight that we have when we meet together is precious to us. I pray that it is precious to all who are here. It's so easy, I think, sometimes just to come to church because we come to church. Rather, I pray, Father, that in our heart of hearts, we would experience the refreshing wonder of being a part of your gathered church. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the encouragement this morning. Thank you, Father, for um, the deep, rich truths that were proclaimed already today, not only to our adults down the hall, but to our children and thank you for making them so clear that our children can, un- can understand. Help me, Father, now to speak with clarity. Protect us from error. Fill us with your truth and by your spirit. Conform us to the image of Christ. Be glorified now, Father, in this hour we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would open your Bibles with me and turn to Psalm chapter 15. We've been Kind of in a short series here between New Testament books where I like to go back to the Old Testament. And we've done other books before, but right now we're just kind of tinkering with the Psalms a little bit, just picking some of my favorites. And so we are on chapter 15 this week. We'll be in 16 next week, and then maybe the week after that, chapter 19. Um, And maybe we'll do a couple of more before we go into our, our next study, which I will announce soon. Uh, This year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, so it behooves us from time to time to talk about some of the essential truths that were relevant during the Reformation and remained uh, relevant for all time. Uh, These were not doctrines that were created during the Reformation. They were doctrines that were rediscovered after centuries of darkness when the gospel had been covered up by tradition. Um, one of those doctrines that the Reformers held to, and they would say the primary doctrine of the Reformation is very simply stated like this. It is called the doctrine of justification by faith alone. In Latin, it was simply referred to as sola fide, faith alone. Martin Luther said the entire Reformation would stand or fall on that one doctrine, that people are justified by faith alone. To be justified means to be declared righteous by God, which is what every sinner needs. At the end of the day, what you need as a sinner is for God to declare you righteous because no unrighteousness is allowed in his presence. So justification by faith alone, by that term, they mean And the Bible teaches that sinners are not saved by their works, but rather by God's justifying grace. That is, he declares sinners righteous or justified, not on the basis of our righteous deeds, but on the merits of Jesus Christ. Hence, his need to come and live for 33 years as a real man, accomplishing or fulfilling all righteousness through his life so that there would be real righteousness that God could apply onto our account. 
Salvation is not merely that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. It is that. Praise God it's that. But we need to understand that we need to not only be forgiven our sins, but we need a righteousness, a positive righteousness that we desperately need. I like to say it this way. It's a righteousness we desperately need, don't have, and cannot earn. But where do we get it? And the reformers were were, uh, loved to point out that what the scriptures taught, both Old Testament and New Testament, by the way, is that God justifies the ungodly. In fact, Paul names God. This is how he calls him. Him who justifies the ungodly. I love that phrase. Because I was ungodly. And he declared me righteous. Not because of anything I've done, but because of Christ. And to the glory of Christ. Uh, There was another teaching that the reformers clung to as well. They would say this. Justification is by faith alone. But justification is never alone. Justification is by faith alone, but justification is never alone. In other words, as soon as God declares a sinner righteous, he in that instant receives the Holy Spirit, perhaps imperceptibly, receives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up dwelling in your life and you become, you start becoming holy. You're declared holy legally, forensically, but then God starts making you holy by this indwelling spirit. You start to love things that you once hated, like reading the Bible and coming to church. I know some of your testimonies and you weren't terribly impressed when you came to church here at Calvary or wherever your first visit to a gospel-preaching church was. There was one family in this church who said, uh, you know, when we visited here, we left in a hurry after that first week because we hated it. And then uh, six months later, they got invited back, and they came again, and they said, you know, (laughs) it's their testimony, no kidding. They said, we left again that week, and we hated it a a little less. (laughs) And and eventually, God saved them and, and And the first indication that they were saved was that they all of a sudden loved the church and they loved God's word and they started reading God's word and they they wanted to sing God's praises and there was was so much growing that needed to be be done, but God was doing it in them. And they who were unrighteous are now declared righteous and they begin practicing righteousness. You follow me? So justification is by faith alone, but justification is never alone. It comes with righteous actions, or it is followed by righteous actions. Or, or a, a better way to say this that we're more familiar with is justification is the root. Their righteousness is the fruit. By their f- fruits, you will know them. You see a tree with no fruit, probably a dead tree, if it's the season for fruit. And Jesus says, cut it down, chop it up. It is good for nothing but to throw, be thrown into the fire. And in case you think he's just being metaphor, metaphorical, he says, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, no fruit, no life. But where there is life, there will be fruit. There will be righteousness. Um, 
And so justification is by faith alone, but justification is never alone. Now, there are two errors that we can fall into when we think about righteousness. On the one hand, we may believe that we will finally be saved because we were good enough and we had sufficient righteousness. It kind of outweighed our unrighteousness, and that is a grave error. Uh, There's no way to merit God's favor like that. You've already blown it. You've already violated the law. You are already worthy of God's righteous and holy judgment. Um, that view is nullified in many passages, both Old and New Testament. Famously, Ephesians 2.8 says that it is by grace you are saved through faith. They're justified by faith. It is by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And so one error is to think that I can achieve my own righteousness before God. But is that what the the Word of God teaches? Um, To people who think their righteousness will save them, their own righteousness will save them, Isaiah warns that all of your righteousness, so unbeliever, all of your righteousness in God's sight is like filthy garments, filthy rags. On the other hand, there are some true believers who misapply the teaching about filthy rags. And they are reluctant to, to th- even think or, or say, you know, if I were to say to you right now, I want you to repeat a phrase, good works. Some of you would go, ah, I've never said that phrase before. <laughs> I'm just afraid of saying that. Or my righteousness. Ah, I can't say that. Why? Because all of my righteousness is but filthy rags. Not if you're a believer. Not if you're a child of God. If you are an unbeliever, yes, all of your righteousness is as nothing to God. It's nothing. But if you're a child of God, he loves your righteousness. He is working that righteousness in your life. And again, it is not just a byproduct. It is the fruit that argues that there is a, indeed a root. There is life. Where there's fruit, there has to be life. And so the, the Jews in the Old Testament would say, and, and they, would, they told Jesus this, listen, we don't, we don't need your message. We are sons of Abraham. And Jesus said, look, if God wanted more sons of Abraham, he could command these rocks and they would become sons of Abraham. And Paul will argue that one is a Jew, not one who is necessarily born a Jew, but one who is made one by God, by transformation of the heart. So that while all of your righteousness back then was as filthy rags, all of your righteousness now, and righteousness being a synonym for holiness that we talked about, I think, last week, and said the simplest definition of holiness is this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. If you're doing that, those are righteous acts. Those are righteous and holy attitudes. And guess what? God doesn't look at them as filthy rags. He loves them. Don't you love it when your children obey you? You say, Johnny, go clean your room. Oh, yes. Thank you, mother. (laughs) I will get to that right away. And can I make you some coffee on my way? You know, I mean, you laugh, but sometimes your children are just extraordinarily obedient and you wonder what their real motive is. (laughs) But we delight when we see 
obedience and righteousness and holiness in our children. That has to be wrought by the Spirit, or else it's not real righteousness. Um, Many wrongly believe that grace means God forgives me of my sin and doesn't care about anything else I do. Um, The scriptures would argue against that. Ephesians 2, we talked about 8 and 9, and we usually, when we memorize, and by the way, parents, don't have your children and Awana leaders. Where's, where's our Awana director? I said, don't just have the kids memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Make sure 10 is with it. It is by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And as we do, notice the connection to last week, we proclaim Christ is excellent in all things to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. Um, J.C. Ryle, in his book, if you haven't read it, you should, especially the first half, he said this, the only safe evidence that we are one with Christ and Christ is in us is a holy life. Or you could say it this way. The only safe evidence that we are with, one with Christ and Christ in us is a righteous life. Not self-righteous, but righteous in God's sight. Now some of you I imagine, as I thought about this this week, some of you may feel squeamish about that terminology, and yet your life is full of all kinds of righteousness, which God is pleased with. It's just I think we need, I think we need, to, we need to finally sharpen our understanding of this theological truth. God loves your righteousness if, you, if you're his child. And he requires your righteousness. And it is proof that the Spirit of God lives within you. And by the way, James argues at the end of the Bible, in his little book, he says this, as a body without breath is dead. So faith without works is dead. Now, you may be used to hearing it as the body without the Spirit is dead. Spirit there is breath. And I think it communicates better And it's a good translation. The body without any breath. You find a body laying on the ground and it ain't breathing, it's dead. And so it is with your professed faith. If your faith is dead, if if your faith doesn't have any works, then it is dead faith and it's good for nothing, as we'll see from James a little later as well. Uh, This is apparently what was on David's mind as he wrote Psalm 15. Okay, so all of that was introduction because we need to understand what God says about righteousness in the believer's life before we can come and really grab hold of Psalm 15. Here is David's question, and we'll read the text in just a minute, but his question is, who shall sojourn in your tent? So he's praying to God. And who shall dwell on your holy hill? 
The question David is asking is a question of eligibility. Who is allowed in your tent? Who is allowed on your hill? Um, What kind of person does God accept? What kind of person does he receive worship from? Consistently, with the rest of the Psalms, his answer will be, that only the righteous are eligible to fellowship with God. Only those whose righteous deeds substantiate their claim to faith in God are eligible to, to fellowship with God. Now, the background on this may very well be, and it's debatable, background on this may very well be uh, that David had uh, recently brought the Ark of the Covenant up to the holy mountain, Mount Zion, pitched the tent over at the tabernacle. People were, were going up to worship. Following that long line, everybody went up to Jerusalem because it's a long hill. One day I'm going to walk that hill, I hope, uh, before I die. And then if not after I die, I probably will then. But um, so this is, uh, David has no doubt put the Ark of the, or little doubt, he's put the Ark of the Covenant up. Uh, the, the tabernacle has been built. And this is significant because this was David's second attempt to do that. Remember what happened at the first attempt? Let's take the ark and let's bring it up to the hill of God. And they, they, they didn't even check the book. They didn't check on God's rules for how to carry his presence, the ark, which represented his presence. So they threw it in the back of a cart. And uh, there are two guys who apparently are driving the ox cart. They're sitting on the bench there, I guess, or whatever. And it hits a bump. And Uzzah, or Uzzah, I don't know how you say his name, he reached out, no doubt in deference to God and faith, whatever, he reached out just instinctively to steady the ark. Remember what God did? Struck him dead. Like Ananias and Sapphira. Just no discussion. Just, you're dead. And, and that, was a, that was a terrible day, but the Lord made his point. The presence of God It's not something that you can just enter into according to your own desires, your own impulses. It's a fearful thing to come into the presence of God. God is holy, holy, holy. Theologians like to say he is thrice holy. There's no place in the Bible where God says, God is mercy, 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 or love, love, love. But he is holy, holy, holy. You must not come into his presence in an unholy manner. One cannot simply saunter into his presence dressed in one's own good intentions. On this day, however, God was careful, uh, David was careful to move God's Ark of the Covenant in a way that was required by his law. He'd successfully brought it into the tabernacle at Mount Zion, the very place where Solomon would later build the temple. Same exact space. It's with this in mind that David writes about who is qualified to enter the presence of God. Let me tell you about Psalms 15. Uh, Its structure is very simple. Any novice student of the Bible can figure this out. There's number one, you can word this differently, but there's one penetrating question in verse one. There are four categories of concern 
where David answers his penetrating question. And then at the end, there's one eternal promise. So with all of that in mind, I like to do it this way. I like to read the text after some explanation so that when you read it, you'll go, oh, I got it. Oh, yeah, that it works. I understand. And then we can, we can pick it apart. So let's stand together and we will read Psalm 15. Short psalm. It's only five verses long. Listen to the word of the Lord through David. A psalm of David, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent and who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does, not, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swear to their own hurt and do not change, who does not put out his, own, his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be shaken. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Let's start with one penetrating question. The opening question may sound familiar to you, but that's probably not because you're familiar with this text. Most people are not familiar with Psalm 15. What we're typically familiar with is Psalm 24, and Keith read that for us a few minutes ago, but watch, watch uh, look at ver- uh, Psalm 24 and listen to what David says there, beginning with verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, etc. And there he goes, he's saying the same thing. And so Psalm 15 and uh, Psalm 24, the wording is different, but the focus and the message is the same. Who is eligible to worship and fellowship with God? Um, This is an important question today because everybody thinks they can fellowship with God. Everybody thinks that based on their own good intention, surely God would not reject me. Who is able to come into God's presence and fellowship with him? And by the way, this would be a really good question to ask on Saturday nights with our families, wouldn't it? Are we ready to enter the house of the Lord? Are we ready to come? I know that uh, in years past, I've been so blessed to see my children as, as, as soon as they discover that um, it was time, the next day was going to be Lord's Supper Sunday, or even that morning, if I forgot to tell them, uh, they would, I would listen and I would hear them confessing sin to each other because they didn't want to come here. They weren't even eligible to partake of the Lord's table yet. And yet they, would, yet they would confess sin to each other and ask one another to forgive without prodding. And, and wow, that was like a miracle. <laughs> and it was wonderful. And you know, when I was studying this, and, and, and last night it, it hit me again, this would be great for us to think about on Saturday night. Lord, I don't want to just saunter in to your presence tomorrow as if it's just assumed that my life is pleasing to you. Rather, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way of everlasting. 
Oh, Father, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And prayers like that would be appropriate on Saturday night or Sunday morning before we come to church. And we would do well to encourage uh, one another to engage in some level of spiritual introspection before we come into the house of the Lord on Sunday. Now, the answer that David offers to his question is not an exhaustive rendering of God's righteous requirements. As I already demonstrated here in 15, it's a little bit different than in 24, and you could compare it with, say, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 or you know, the love chapter, or uh, Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You could, you could insert the same things here because these are all attitudes and actions of righteousness. And so this isn't an exhaustive text, but it is a sampling of what God requires. And so here they are. There's four of them, and I'm just going to break them down into, into words that we can remember, or I've been trying to remember the four things, four critical concerns. Number one, your character. Number two, your communication. Number three, your companionship. And number four, your cash. He's talking about debt and money, so that just seemed like a great C word there. Uh, your character, it should be holy. Your communication, it should not be injurious to other people. Your companions, they should love God. And your cash, It should not entice you to sin. David was asking these penetrating questions, or this primary penetrating question, and let's kind of consider his answers here one at a time. Verses 2 through 5, he's talking about your character. I want you to notice here that of these four categories, two of them are positive and two of them are negative. Let me go through them again. Your character should be holy. You should pursue holiness. That's positive. It's active. Secondly, your communication should not injure other people. So there are things that you should do. As a righteous person, there are things that you should resolve never to do. There is a putting on and there is a putting off. And so it is. Your character should be holy. Your communication should not be injurious. Your companion should love God. Your cash should not entice you to sin. And so there are negatives and positives. And the first one here is positive. Um, Who is eligible to worship and fellowship with God? And notice what he says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Now, can I just say here at the beginning that he's not talking about perfection. He's not saying that you have to be perfect. There is a perfect standard, but it has already been met by Christ for you. He died for you, he, but more importantly, relative to righteousness, he lived for you. He lived in your place for you. And we'll talk about Christ here at the end, how he is the fulfillment, really, of this text and others like it. But he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. So David's describing a man who maintains a righteous character. The word blameless here means that which is whole or sound. It is together. It is not demarcated and separated and broken into little pieces. This is, this is a morally well-rounded man. And this is a man who, um, who is not just upright in some areas and wicked in others, but a man who strives 
to be holy in all of his behavior, in his entertainment, and his conversation on the job, and the way he manages his money, and the friends that he, that he hangs out with, and the, and the, the humor that he engages in, and, and all of it. And he knows as a believer when the, when the perfect inspecting eyes of God look into his heart, he understands that all of it is tainted by depravity. And yet God is pleased. God reckons it as righteousness when we pursue it in order to please him. You know, when, when you send a child to go clean their room and they're, you know, three or four years old and you say, Johnny, go clean your room. And they go in and they're working and they're working. You might have to remind them a couple times, but when they're done, they come out and say, Mommy, I'm done. And you walk in and you don't say, this is horrible. I mean, look, you didn't get that stuffed animal put in the right place. No, no, no. You, what do you do? You reckon it as righteousness and you say, that was a really good job. And you know in your heart it's not perfect. But that was a really good job. And you know what? Every time God looks at any righteous act I do with the best motive that I can, that I can have in a moment, the Lord looks at that and receives it with joy, knowing that it is not perfect. Even the Apostle Paul, as you remember, said, it's not as though I've attained, but I press on. And with that, God is pleased. This is a man of general integrity. Um, he pursues righteousness, and when he fails, when he sins, he's quick to run to the cross and to have his feet washed, as it were, to be cleansed afresh and anew. Now, we've all known people who appear gracious and kind and godly in church, but at home they're angry and selfish tyrants who rule their families by fear and intimidation. Unfortunately, too many pastors do that. And from time to time, we read about a renowned Christian celebrity who fell, who fell, air quotes if you can't see me, who fell into gross immorality. And the truth, however, is that nobody falls into gross immorality. A man who falls into immorality is one who in his heart, in the secret moments of his life where no one else can see, has been incrementally taking steps downward, downward, downward where no one else can see. And when he takes that final step, it all comes to light. And you think he fell, but he didn't fall. He walked there on his own two legs. A man of integrity is not merely known for what he doesn't do, but he is known for what he does. He, according to verse 2, does what is right. He's looking for good things to do for people. Uh, he practices active righteousness, not for the purpose of meriting God's pay, uh, favor, but rather simply to please his dad, knowing that his dad is easily pleased by his children. He helps those in need. He teaches his children to obey. He gives an honest day's work for a day's pay. He pays his taxes. He loves his neighbor. He could fill in the blank. And all the while, he speaks truth in his heart. This is not he knows the truth and says the truth, knows the truth and teaches the truth. It means in his everyday wrestling with his own life and godliness, He's reminding himself of the truth. He's bringing truth to bear in his own life as he brings it to bear on other people's lives. He speaks truth in his heart. In other words, 
He not only says things that are true, but he considers the truth that God has revealed and speaks it to his own life. And he strives to be especially honest with himself about his own sin. Like David, right? Search me, O God. I don't want anything to be hidden. I don't want any, any spiritual cancer to go unnoticed. Root it out. Find it. Expose it. This, beloved, is a man of integrity. He's not perfect. He's not perfect. But he's humbled by God's willing to forgive his sin. And he strives to not sin against people or against God. He would be the first to admit that he's not everything that he ought to be. And so a man who is eligible to worship and fellowship with God is one who is careful about his character. And we could stop along the way with each one of these four and and simply ask, are you a person of character? Are you a person of general character? Is your outer life a true reflection of what is really going on in your heart? And are you pursuing righteousness? This is the kind of person who is eligible to come and fellowship with God. Secondly, not just your character, but your communication. And you could say communication is part of your character, and that's true, but David kind of makes it a separate category here. The righteous man does not slander his neighbor. Verse 2 offers a positive trait. Verse 3, however, speaks in a negative way. This is what a righteous man refuses to do. He will not slander his neighbor. In the Ten Commandments, the ninth commandment is, you shall not bear false witness. Um, It involves more than saying things that saying things about others that aren't true. It also involves revealing negative things about others that perhaps are true. And a righteous man strives to not do that and asks for forgiveness when he does. Verbal sins are often kind of in that category that Jerry Bridges calls acceptable sins. If you haven't read his book, I encourage you to do that. He's not making excuses about those sins. He's saying we tend to make excuses about these things, and that's wrong. Now, don't misunderstand. It doesn't mean that a person who uh, has passed on a word of gossip is the same morally as an axe murderer, Right? He's not saying that. There are degrees of sin, to be sure. And the least of them are enough to send you to hell. But what we tend to do is say, oh, well, it really wasn't anything. I mean, I just meant it in jest. I was just being humorous. Proverbs is full of warnings about how we use our tongues. Proverbs 12, 18, there is one who whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. 17.4, an evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to mischievous tongues. 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. 21.23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Now that's motivating. Want to stay out of trouble? Keep your mouth shut. People will think you're wise, even if you're a fool. That's another proverb. And James warns, now listen to this, if anyone thinks he is religious, think faith. I have faith. If anyone thinks he is religious 
and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion, faith, is worthless. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? This man's religion is worthless. Now, that's a strong word. It it raises verbal sins out of that category of respectability and acceptance and into a whole area of, of fear and trembling. Um, James is saying that if we commit unrepentant verbal sins against one another, the Lord considers our religion, our faith, worthless. Why? Because if your faith were real, it would be producing righteous speech, holy speech, gracious speech, and true repentance, and true repentance. Praise the Lord for true repentance. Praise the Lord that God accepts repentance and restores us quickly. He's our father. He's he's not our judge. He is the judge of the world. But for his children, he's our father. He disciplines us because he loves us. He wants us to be righteous and holy because that's the happiest place in the world to be. We live to his glory and to our own joy. It's a sobering thought to consider that it's possible that our sinful words spoken in the privacy of our own homes may disqualify us from fellowship with communion with God. At least until we repent. But David continues by warning that a righteous man does not does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Nothing is worse than to learn that you have been slandered by someone that you thought was a close friend. That's the worst. One scholar writes, there is a special wickedness in injuring one with whom you have been intimate. That's what made the kiss of Judas so evil. And that's why you feel the evil of it intuitively. Nobody has to exposit that. The betrayer kisses the betrayed. And those who are eligible to worship and fellowship with God are scrupulous about their communication. They're careful about how they talk with people and about people. I can't help but wondering this morning, since this is such a common form of unrighteousness, whether there may be quite a few of us in this building who need to confess to God, and maybe there's some people in your life that you need to go ask forgiveness of. Because that's what righteous people do. That's what people who have been saved by the glorious grace of a loving Father, that's what they do. They own their sin. They ask for forgiveness. And they ask it from God and the people they've offended. So righteous people are concerned about their character and their communication. Third, they're concerned about their companions. Verse 4, Here's the second positive or active manifestation of righteousness in, in this psalm. David says, a righteous man is one who, in whose eyes a vile person is despised and who honors those who fear the Lord. I think, in other words, the righteous person is careful about... Okay, this is one category of application. You could probably put it in a lot of different care, uh, qualities, but it's what came to my mind. One category is your choice of companions, your, your choice of friends. A righteous man is going to guard against establishing close friendships with those who reject God and his word. I I said a few weeks ago, your best friend should not be an unbeliever. And I know some of you will take umbrage at that. 
But the scriptures warn us again and again and again. Bad company corrupts good morals, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. We tend to become like the people we spend time with. That doesn't mean we don't spend any time with unbelievers. We do spend. We should be strategic in spending time with unbelievers. But your closest companions should be people who love God. It's why Proverbs warns with such proverbial language as this in 22, verse 24, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Why? Lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. We learn from each other, especially when you're more impressionable as a child or as a teenager. You learn from the people you hang out with. You learn how to talk. You learn how to walk. You learn how to live. You learn how to... respond to mistreatment. You learn how to respond to difficulty by watching others. And it's not just people who become our friends, but also people that we, we apparently admire. And by apparently, mean, I mean we willingly broadcast who we admire. It's common for young people to idolize certain athletes or uh, people who are exceptionally skilled in their sport, but, but whose lives are wretched and heathen when they're off the field. Such men and women are notorious for uh, their uh, abusive, illegal, narcissistic behavior. They're vile and crude, and they stand for nearly everything that God stands against. And yet, we wear their names on our t-shirts and our jerseys, and we allow our children to put their their posters in their bedroom. And, And it shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. Those are not the people that we should admire. David is saying the righteous man sees people as they really are, as God sees them. The most important thing about a man or woman is not whether he can throw, catch, or run. It's not how fast he can swim or how well he can sing. The question is, does he or she have a life that reflects the character of God? Those are the people you should admire, which is, again, why... And I know I beat this drum a lot, even with my own kids. But you should be reading biography. I was listening yesterday to a recording of Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching. And, uh, and he was, let's see, this sermon was in 1955. I don't know how they made it so clear. Uh, probably digitally mastered, but it's, it's, uh, it's very, very clear. And uh, he's talking about, he's actually was preaching out of the text I'm going to be preaching out of next week. And uh, he's talking about the Christian life. And he's talking about spending time in prayer and in Bible study and all the, the critical means of grace. And then he says, listen, you are going to learn from the people you admire And so I say, read biography, read Christian biography. You will be stirred up when you see how God used them and the decisions they made and the righteous things that they did for the glory of God. You will be moved to follow their example. Better that than someone on your favorite football team, unless they too are a strong believer with a wonderful testimony, and that happens. David's saying that a righteous man is a good judge of character. In his heart, he recognizes the difference between between those who are righteous and those who are wicked. And by the way, our culture needs a gigantic dose of this kind of righteousness. 
unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, the only way they're ever going to get it is through the gospel, which is why we need to be involved in their lives. The other manifestation of righteousness David mentions here in verse 4 is that he swears to his own hurt and does not change his mind. Simply stated, a righteous man keeps his word. If he says he's going to do something, he does it. Jesus taught, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't swear on the temple. Don't swear on the altar of the temple. Don't swear on the altar in the temple. Don't swear. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say you're going to do something, do it. And do it to your own hurt. If things don't work out, if you come into an agreement with someone and you say, listen, I'm going to do this for you and, uh, and, and, um, and, and here's the agreement and, and they don't fulfill their end of the bargain, but you've committed to them or, or circumstances change and yet you said you would do this. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Um, John Calvin said, regarding um, occasionally when this happens, when we're resolved to honor those who are truly honorable in the world, sometimes that's a hard thing to do. When the world hates that honorable person, it's a hard thing to do. John Calvin knew that. He said, it is no common virtue, no common virtue to honor pious and godly men since in the opinion of the world, they are often as the off-scouring of all things. It's hard to honor them publicly, but they are worthy of honor. Stick your neck out. Take the risk. Honor those who are honorable. In other words, sometimes honoring righteous people is going to cost you dearly. Do it anyway. Do it to your own hurt. A righteous man does it. Perhaps the one area in the Christian community where keeping your word, even when it hurts, is most needed is in marriage. It's in marriage. When a man or woman stand before God on their wedding day and make a solemn vow to remain true to one another from this day forward, to love, honor, and cherish for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, as long as we both shall live, that is a commitment. It is a covenant. And too often, even in the church, people separate, they divorce when it gets tough. Now, please understand, if you have been divorced and you're remarried or whatever it is, I'm really not speaking to you. You've been through all of that, all of that pain and that difficulty, and, and you are where you are today. I'm talking to you who are married right now. And I guarantee you, one thing I know for sure about your marriage, you married a sinner, and so did your spouse. And there are times when it's going to be really hard, and you're going to be tempted to think, man, it's got to be something better out there. Swearing to your own hurt means no, no. Speaking truth in your heart is what you need to do at that moment. No, no. I vowed that I would never leave this woman, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. And it's hard right now, and I don't like her, and she doesn't like me, but we will not give up because the glory of God is at stake here. The glory of God is at stake. The righteous man or woman swears to his own herd and does not change his mind. And so the man or woman who is eligible to worship in fellowship with God is one who is concerned about his character, his communication, his companions. And finally, here's the second negative mark of the righteous man. 
The second thing he refuses to do is this, namely, he refuses to put out money at interest and does not take a bribe. In other words, the righteous man or woman does not involve himself in financial dealings that will hurt other people for his own profit. Now, we don't have time to go into the Old Testament um, teaching on uh, lending, um, but, but let me just say this, and, and if you read on this or listen to sermons on this, you're going to hear this almost whoever you listen to, because everybody agrees on this, basically, that, um, that in the Old Testament, it wasn't that you weren't allowed to lend. God's concern was usury, that you would charge interest and you would charge too much. And the rule was, if you were an Israelite and someone came to you to take a loan, you weren't allowed to charge your brother interest. But if it's somebody outside the community, a Gentile, you can charge them a lot of interest. Uh, or you can charge them interest, but it wasn't allowed to be excessive. And so the rule was established by God, and he mentions it again and again and again, so that you're not using the other person to make yourself rich, that you're not harming the other person to make yourself rich. If you're a Christian salesman, this verse is likely going to challenge and stretch you in rather uncomfortable ways if you have any, any say over what the price is going to be. But it's appropriate to wrestle with scriptures like this. And let God transform your thinking and practice in ways that will glorify him, or maybe even give you a new career, if necessary, in order to honor him. And so this is God's snapshot of a righteous man. It's really not even a snapshot of the whole righteous man. It is a snapshot of just generally what a righteous man kind of sort of looks like. These are some things that should mark our lives. So this is the righteous man. It's not a comprehensive description. It does help us see uh, what the pursuit of holiness looks like. By the way, the, uh, uh, the Psalms leading up to this, Psalm 1, for example, two ways to live, the righteous and the wicked. Uh, a number of those Psalms leading up to 15, Paul is talking about the righteous man. He's talking about the righteous man. Be righteous. Here's what the righteous, here's the promises of God to the righteous man. Lord, remember me according to my righteousness, etc. But it's until chapter 15, not until fi- chapter 15, that he actually describes the righteous man. And this is his description in four key areas. And then lastly, there is one eternal promise. David ends the psalm by saying, he who does these things shall not be moved. The NAS says, shall not be shaken. This is a promise of eternal security. You say, are you saying that my eternal security is bound up in my works? And my answer to that is what we said at the beginning. No. Your eternal security is not purchased by your works or sustained by your works. They are merely the evidence of what is true in your heart. Do you really know him? Do you really belong to him? Is his spirit resident inside of you? Have you come to him in repentance and faith? Has he received you to himself as his own? If all of that is true, then you will have righteous deeds. You will sacrifice for other people. You will swear to your own hurt. You will be careful in your choice of friends. You will serve people with your money rather than using them to get more. Oh, my friends, I would imagine that some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, I hear this list and the other list and think of the fruit of the Spirit. I don't have any hope to ever fellowshipping with God. 
And maybe, you're, maybe you see your sin. Can we just go back to Genesis for a second? Remember Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve? Put in the garden, they were perfect. God said, don't eat of that tree. They ate of the tree. They sinned. How did they respond to that sin? They ran from God. They hid from God. And they made their own coverings. And what did God do in response to their sin? He didn't say, that's it, I'm done. I knew it was going to go this way. Let's start over. No, no, no. He went down in the garden and he said, Adam, where are you? As if he didn't know, right? That's important because he didn't say, Adam, get right here. To the count of 10, you got to 10 to stand right here. No, no, Adam, where are you? Where are you? He actively searches the sinner out. He goes looking for him. Where's the sinner? Running, hiding, covering with a covering that is worthless fig leaves, imagine. No, don't. <clears throat> and, and God goes to them. And after conversation, you know what he does for them? He exposes their hiding place. He draws them out to himself. And then he takes an animal and he kills it. This is what you deserve. But you will not get it from me this day. Take off that covering and let me cover you with one who has died in your place. And that is what God offers you today. You know your sin. You're running from God because of your sin. You're trying to cover it up with all of this patchwork righteousness and plastic fruit. Give it up. Stop trying to cover yourself with phony righteousness. There is a righteousness you desperately need and don't have and can't earn. But you have been given Christ. And God has taken Christ like a lamb and slew him, crushed him. And his blood is now God's appointed covering for your sin. And it is your only hope and your every hope. I plead with you. Stop running. Stop hiding. Stop covering. Rather, flee to Jesus. Flee to the cross where you will be forgiven. And you will be declared righteous and let God begin producing righteousness in you for his great glory and for your own great unquenchable joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. And uh, we all need to hear this. Lord, it's so easy just to think of ourselves too highly and to think we can just saunter into the worship service or saunter into our our prayer time for other people and, and never really examine our hearts, never really ask you to put the searchlight on our lives to see if we're really, if we've really been declared righteous, have we really been indwelt by the Spirit? Are you producing works in us with which you are pleased? Is there fruit that verifies the life of the root
And oh, Father, I pray that as we do this from day to day, that we would be greatly encouraged by the reality that you forgive us no many, how many hundreds of times we come to you. you. You know our hearts. You know when we are truly repentant and you are quick to forgive. And so we praise you and bless your name. Help us now, Father, as we leave here to engage in righteousness and holiness that we would pursue loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. Even before we leave here today, oh, Father, may it be said of us that we engaged in righteous questions and righteous prayer and righteous encouragement toward one another today and throughout the week. Lord, be glorified in us, we pray, in all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.